Well, if you're uh, new with us, we are right in the middle towards the end. We've got three weeks left in our fall teaching series entitled Jesus Is. Uh, Actually, nobody gets to go to the grave without deciding the religion question. Is there a God? And, and And if there is a God, does he even care about my life? Like, does he care about the day-to-day grind. And so our, 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 our big idea for this series is this, is that we would be a church that takes Jesus off the shelf and puts him into our lives. That, that Jesus is not this transactional relationship, but a transformative uh, relationship where we just don't intellectually think about, you know, God, but we actually allow him to transform our lives. Like when we get paid, we ask him, Jesus, what would you want me to do with my finances? When we parent, we ask uh, Jesus, uh, if you don't help me, I might do 20 to life on my kids. Will you help me? A parent might, you know, you know we're, we're involving Jesus in every aspect uh, of our lives. Here's the deal. Uh, everyone has an opinion on who Jesus is. Musicians, politicians definitely do. I won't even go there right now. Uh, even pastors, uh, you know, you would assume that. Uh, but, but even atheists and agnostics, everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. So the heart of this series is to simply, as best as I can as a sinful, wicked man, uh, let Jesus speak for himself. What a thought, right? Let Jesus define himself on his own terms, serve up the meal to you, and let you decide where you want to start eating and where you want to look and peruse and even explore. Today is probably the most sentimental statement that Jesus makes. So uh, if you are a person that is drawn to mercy ministry, you're going to love this sermon, because uh, today Jesus defines himself this way. I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Not, not, not a shepherd, uh, but the good shepherd, okay? Kind of a tall order he gives himself. What he's talking about there is he is the one that will care and shepherd our hearts. Uh, it, it's no surprise. I read an article. It's on the internet, so I don't really believe it because I think the number is too low. That Americans spend a minimum of two hundred dollars treating themselves. So if you like Parks and Rec, there's a free reference. You're welcome. Uh, we spend two hundred dollars uh, treating ourselves, right? Uh, I've not met a, a, a female that doesn't like a good mani pedi and a massage, right, ladies? Amen. Okay. All right. Someone's awake. That's great. Uh, so my, my wife knows that uh, she needs a mani-pedi and a massage, but will often put it off. Ladies, you do this all the time. You put up with us, spouses, with our kids, and it seems like you always put yourself second. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm not awesome at life, but there are moments where I, where I kill it. So yesterday, I picked up the phone, and I know that my wife in two weeks is leaving, thank God, Illinois, and finally uh, joining me. Being a bachelor in your mid-20s is a lot different in your mid-30s when you're married, you're supposed to be living with somebody, right? So I called the spa in Peoria, and I said, I want a mani, pedi, and a massage for my wife next Saturday, okay? And so when I called her, that's going to give her happy thoughts as she takes that long grind driving out here. Now, they listen, guys, they were asking me questions like, what kind of name? I don't know. Just put some, I don't, let her figure that out. But, but the point is, we know we should take care of ourselves but we often don't make time for ourselves, do we? And we, alter, we sacrifice ourselves on the altar of our schedule, right? I mean, I, I do it all the time. I do it all the time. If it's not on the schedule, well, like I, I said something last service, and somebody came up to me, and they're like, oh, you already have something planned. 
told you. Like, if it's not in my schedule, I'll forget about it. And it deuces, like, everything is on our schedule. And if we don't schedule it, oftentimes, without crazy our world is, it just doesn't get done. Kathleen Gurney, president of Financial Psychology Corporation, says many Americans feel uh, spent because they work hard, seem to feel like they never get ahead, so spending money on treating themselves gives them that momentary lift and good feeling, right? And we do this, whether it's a mani-pedi, massage, a haircut, going to Fenway, taking in a ball game, fishing. I mean, there's so many. It's a beautiful place to live on your day off. I don't know if you know that or not. These are things that I'm finding out. Uh, as beautiful as, as Colorado. There are so many things to do on the weekends and on your days off here to fill us up, but we often don't create time. It's interesting that in the 90s, 80s, 90s, we stopped putting front porches uh, on our houses and we started building uh, back decks. And so we, we stopped getting to know our neighbors. And uh, more recently, 74% of millennials prefer spending money when, they, when they're treating themselves on experiences than things. So another shift in the housing market is that not only are front porches non-existent, not only back decks are kind of sort of irrelevant, but that yards are getting smaller, houses are getting smaller, because millennials, which I barely make under the tag, I'm 36, born in 82, whatever, I don't, what, it's a label, whatever, um, they, they would rather spend money on vacations. They would rather spend money on tickets, uh, to go see their favorite band at Fenway, uh, which, by the way, I wasn't going to bring this up, but this is how much I love and care for you. My second Sunday, I had tickets to go see Pearl Jam at Wrigley, and I was here for you guys, okay? <laughs> but, but my wife went with, her, with my cousin, and she laughed at me the whole time. Uh, millennials want experiences, not nice cars or bigger... I mean, we want nice stuff, but that's not what we want to spend our our money on. And so in the house market, we're seeing smaller houses, smaller yards, because people would rather spend their money on things that actually fill their soul and not just drain their bank accounts. Okay, so we know we need to take care of ourselves. We know that's important, but how do we take care of our soul? Well, in John 10, Jesus talks about the kind of shepherd that he is. In verse 14, he says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep, uh, I know my sheep, I know my, man, sorry guys, let me start over. I know my own sheep and my own sheep know me. In the same way, the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's an intimacy we talked about when Jesus said he's God, that Jesus was face to face with the Father before he left heaven. And he wants that same intimacy with us. I put the sheep before myself, sacrificing myself if necessary. There's no other God that does that. Gods want to be worshipped. Gods don't self-sacrifice. But Jesus is a different kind of God. You need to know that I have other sheep in addition to those in the pen. I need to gather and bring them in too. They'll also recognize my voice. Then it will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I freely lay down my life, and I'm so... and so I am free to take it up again. No one takes it away from me. I lay it down on my own free will. I have the right to lay it down. I also have the right to take it up. I received this authority personally from my Father. When you're God, you don't have opinions. You have authority. So anytime Jesus ever said anything about life, sex, marriage, dating, money, it's not his opinion as another religious figure. If he's God, it's his, it's his authoritative statement. It's not something to be like, oh, let's negotiate that. It's, it's, no, it's, 
It's okay, I don't like that, but how do I, how do I submit myself under that? And so Jesus says, I care about my sheep so much that I'm willing to go out even for one. We just sang about that, you guys, in that song, Wreck of Love. So, so what kind of shepherd is Jesus? Well, in the first century, which I love doing the historical stuff, a good shepherd always goes before the sheep. And oftentimes, if a shepherd was a musician, he would play a flute or sing over his sheep as he's traveling. I don't know if you know this or not, but being a shepherd is kind of a boring job. It's just you and maybe one or two other people, right? And like, like that, that, that's why like we're intentional with what we sing. And so when, when Janine was singing how before I was born, you sing over me, that's what a good shepherd does. As your mom was carrying you in her womb, Jesus is already singing over you. He's already delighted about you. Even before the, the pain of childbirth, right? And your mom's like, why? Oh, Jesus is already, already, I, I've not been in that. I'm just imagining. Jesus, Jesus is already singing over you. He's already wowed over you, regardless of how your life turns out. Because the truest thing of ourselves is that we are beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. Some other cool things that a good shepherd does is that when he's traveling and night, nightfall is about to happen, he finds a hole or a cave in the side of a hill and puts all of his sheep in there uh, under the cover of darkness, away from the rain, and possible enemies. Uh, one beautiful, I love this statement. When I heard it when I was a middle school student, uh, a pastor was teaching it, and I want to share it with you, is that a good shepherd goes ahead of the sheep down into the valley, and then he calls his sheep to graze on the grass. So what? Who cares? You do. Here's why. That, that there was a plant in the first century, I don't remember it, but it produced, it secreted an ointment that the shepherd would go down in the valley and look for holes. If he found a hole in the dirt, he would fill that hole with, with ointment, and it would seal it off. Then he would call the sheep down uh, into, um, into the valley to eat. Why did he do that? Because in the first century, in, over in the Middle East, uh, below the surface were venomous snakes. And so if a snake slithered his way up, I guess that's what they do, if he slithered his way up and bit a sheep, chances are that sheep would die almost instantaneously. And da- look, this is beautiful. And then David writes, this is how good you are, God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, that the sheep were literally eating just above the enemies that wanted to kill them. That's how good God's provision is as a shepherd. Isn't that, isn't that, a, beautiful, isn't that a beautiful statement? I just, I, I, I could be just, I can just walk off right now, right? Most of you would be happy with that. I, I love that idea. John Orberg in his book, Soul Keeping, says this, for the soul to be well, it needs to be with God. Not with our iPhones, not with our calendars. I'm guilty of that, right? Not with our kids' busy schedules. Our soul needs to be with God. The best place to start doing life with God is in small moments. So I want to talk about, with our time remaining, what kind of shepherd Jesus is to us personally, corporately as a church, and to people who are far from God. So the first idea is this, that Jesus develops and cares for his followers, uh, oftentimes, we boil down Christianity to behavior modification. We think we're a good Christian on the way we behave. Jesus is far more interested in how our soul is developing. He's far more interested in how we navigate really good seasons of life and really terrible, horrific, backbreaking uh, seasons of life. 
And in John 10, he says, my sheep know my voice when I call to them. Last week when we said um, that uh, the reason why Jesus was single because he called himself a door, uh, we talked about the sheep would be put in the sheep pen and the shepherd would go in for a night's rest, a meal, a shower, get up the next day and leave. Well, when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, what he's talking about is the next morning. The next morning when all of the shepherds wake up out of the shepherd hotel, whatever they called it back then, Best Western or something, they would all stand around the perimeter, kind of like, you know, like this room, not saying that you're sheep, but some of you smell. Uh, They're standing around the perimeter of this room and all of the shepherds are calling for their specific sheep all at once. What is the loudest voice in your life right now? How is your mental health? When you think about your body, what do you think about? Th- that's important to Jesus. You know. When you think about your relationships, what do you think about? You see, there are so many things, I don't have to tell you this, you know, there are so many things screaming for your attention, good things, that that it's hard to hear ultimate things. It's hard, honestly, like for me, it's hard to get discernment. And you pay me to teach you the Bible, and I'm just saying this is something that I should, it's hard to get discernment sometimes. And if we were honest, there are so many voices competing for our attention that it's, it's hard to discern, is this, is this the shepherd's voice? Because I, I know the shepherd has my best intentions in mind. Even, even, if, it's, even if we're going to walk to a really hard season, I know he wants good for me. And sometimes we talk about listening to bad things, but the tension is listening to really good things that seem to be for us. But Jesus, no, I, I need you to lean in and listen to Listen to ultimate things. Because because if a sheep did not listen well, he would wander off with a different shepherd and end up in a place, and we've said this before, I never thought life would turn out this way. What is the loudest voice in your life that is screaming for your attention? One of my favorite things to do in small groups is to lead different prayer exercises. And so I thought it'd be a bit hypocritical, hypocritical to talk about being a good uh, Jesus being the good shepherd and not carving out time to listen to him. And so what I invite you into, hey, don't freak out, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and start twirling things, but I'll, in a minute, we're going to do a seven-minute prayer experience. I, I love Jesus because he was a very curious guy. He asked over a hundred questions in the New Testament. We don't have time for that, but I want to ask you seven questions that Jesus asked of other people or other people asked of him. And when we do this, I want you to imagine wherever your place of serenity is, the ocean, the mountains, a coffee shop, uh, maybe you have a chair in your house that you just love to get away from the family and spend time with God, or maybe you watch your favorite sport uh, on TV, wherever that is, I want to give you permission to go there and imagine with me that Jesus is sitting across from you. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. If, if you're not okay with that in a public place, you can keep your eyes open, that's fine. And what I'm going to do is give you a minute per question that Jesus asked in his public ministry 
but you can just interact with him. After I ask the first question, there's going to be some music playing in the background, some mood music that will help us, guide us through these thoughts. Jesus, in this moment, we just pause amongst all the noise, the things screaming for our attention, and we want to listen to you right now. What is your name? What are you so anxious about? What do you want me to do for you? Why, why are you looking for me?
Do you want to leave me too? Do you want to be well? How long should I stay with you? Jesus, thank you for uh, this quiet moment of rest. I pray that it would cause <clears throat> a deep breath in us and a reminder that of all the things we are, we think we are, the labels we wear, that we are your beloved son and daughter. I thank you for meeting us in this moment. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to I encourage you guys, as uh, my small group leader did when I was younger, you literally prayed for seven minutes. It's hard for me to focus that long on anything. And I want to encourage you that, that if you struggle with prayer uh, individually or corporately in the church or a small group, you, you can do it. You can. Do, and all I did, right, here's my secret, I googled questions Jesus asked in the New Testament. And I want to encourage you, if you're looking for something to do for your devotional, do that when you get home. And just take one question a day and just journal how you would answer that. It, it, what Jesus wants not a transactional relationship, but a transformative 
uh, relationship with us. I want to I talk about Jesus' care for the church. He, uh, he empowers his church to care for his followers. And I want to get real practical, cast some vision about what the future of RCC is going to look like in terms of care, the quality of care. So there's, there's about three or four different ways that you could be cared for at RCC. And the first one is, is right now. You're already doing it. You're awesome. It's just coming, just being here. Uh, and if you come on the weekends, that's a great first step. And if you're new, trying to you know, put your toes in the water, that, that's great. Uh, at, at this level of care, there's some great positives. People only know your first name, right? We don't know where you live yet, right? Uh, and, and for someone that is, um, is checking out churches, you need that. And you need to hear the lead minister say that if you want to check us out for a while and re- remain anonymous, that's okay. That, that, that's okay. Uh, however, when things happen in your life and you really need relationship and you, you need care, uh, and we don't have a connect card that you filled out, you've not communicated any way, you've never given here, if there's not any way to identify yourself, we, we don't know you. We don't know you. And so that, that's some of the negative of just staying at the weekend experience level where you're just coming on the weekends. And that, that, that's okay for a season. Everybody needs that, okay? You need that season to explore whether you're convinced or curious that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The next level of care, and this isn't like Power Rangers where we're leveling up. Uh, it's not better than, it's like music. It's just different. Another way for care to be cared for at RCC is to join one of our weekend or throughout the week, one of our serving teams. Uh, we, we have folks cutting the grass, cleaning toilets, leading small groups, which is not the same, well, maybe is the same thing as cleaning toilets. Uh, leading small groups, that was funny, guys, come on. Uh, good Lord, wake up. Uh, leading kids ministry, student ministry, uh, leading worship. I mean, we were just led into the throne by a teenager. Like, that's, that's amazing. That, that we, and there's already, side note, there's a, there's a groundswell at the student ministry level of young musicians rising up uh, due to Brian and Tyler and the ministry team's leadership. We're getting a student band together that, uh, man, I'm just really excited about. So when you join a serving team, not only do people, this is a metaphor, you understand that, I think, that people get to know your first name, but also your last name. So, so you're allowing us into your life more and, and vice versa. When you join a serving team, you're starting to realize that weekend experiences, uh, the services, are not about me anymore. And the way that I was loved and cared for and served when my family came in for the first time, now I want to do that for somebody else. And that, that's what we call exponential growth, exponential leadership. So joining a serving team, is, it, it's, it's a shift in mindset that maybe the church is not about the people that are here yet, uh, here already, but it's for the people that, that are yet to come. And I want to be on a team that welcomes that next wave of people that will be coming this fall and even to our, I'm getting excited about it, our Christmas Eve services, right? Like, th- that's another level of care. At, at this level of care, it's an opportunity to take people out to lunch. People might invite you. You get to know a, a core group of people without the intensity, if you're afraid of this, of an in-depth Bible study or praying with strangers. These are all natural things that, that we take and, and work through uh, as we progress and getting more and more integrated into the life of a church. That's a phenomenal next step 
to get to know people at a, a little bit of a deeper level, but not so uh, intrusive level, if you, if you know what I mean. The, the next level of care is what I talked about during the announcements, and that's our care team. Uh, if you uh, have a heart for mercy and hospitality and grace and love, uh, and, and you uh, people define you as being kind, uh, a care team might be a great way uh, to get plugged into. But we also want to say that if you attend RCC and you're what I would call the deepest level of care, and we'll get there, a small group, even if you're not in a small group, even if you're not uh, joining, you're not on a serving team yet, you still need to be cared for, right? Life tends to happen when it wants to. So even if you're new here and you're not on a serving team, you're not connected, you've never given, you've never filled out a connect card, you, if you email us at care at rccsalem.com or you call the offices or email a staff member or what, contact an elder, we will care for you. We, we will care for you because it's not fair for us as a leadership to say the only way you can be cared for is on a serving team or a small group. I prefer those ways, but we want to create avenues to expand our ability to care for people that are in different uh, places and spaces and are trying to test the waters here at RCC before they get heavily involved. So I want you to know that if you have a hospitalization, a uh, birth of a child, a death in the family, uh, and you need a card, someone to talk to, someone to visit you, our care team, Marie Halley's heading up. She's looking for about 20 to 25 people, which I'm sure she has like, I think, seven or eight already. We, we will be there for you. But you have, to, you have to have a desire to be known. You have to communicate, here's the need in my family, so we can come alongside of you and care for you. And fourthly and finally, what I'm going to call life groups. I know in the past we called them grow groups. And I have a meeting Tuesday night with all of our current group leaders. But, but life groups really capture uh, what groups are about. Groups do grow uh, th uh, theologically, intellectually about God, but the purpose of group life isn't for like a 48-hour Bible study or, or, or to pray without ceasing. Those things are good, but it's to do life with one another. Uh, I'll never forget when I was in Illinois when the Havrons uh, had their baby, their, their first baby, a li little girl, and we as a small group rotated visiting them and sending them meals. Also, never forget uh, being part of a different small group and uh, a couple going through a divorce right before our eyes, shouting matches happening in my kitchen. Right? Group life is messy, and if all we do is limit it to a nice, neat little Bible study with church answers, we never get into the transformative part that Jesus wants to do with our soul. And so whether it's celebrating uh, a birth or walking through a divorce with a couple, that is the beauty of having people that have your back, having a tribe, and taking this weekend experience into the week, knowing that no matter how crazy your weekend is, whether you can get there or not, you always have a group of people to meet with during the week where your first name is not known, just known, your last name is not known, but your middle name is known. Does that make sense? Like the, the, you're starting to share what you really think about yourself, what you really think about life, and what you really think about God. Guys, God is serious about this. In Ezekiel 34, he says, I myself will tend to my sheep. I will have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost, bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Now, 
I could preach from that text all day, but what God later says is that if my people are not cared for in the church that they attend, I will not lose sleep shutting it down. So often, if you grew up in the church or the way you experienced church as a kid, we can be so married to tradition that we miss a generation that could care less about our tradition because it doesn't even make sense. Like, for example, we're moving to more digital stuff. Not many people bring the Bible to church anymore. That's not right or wrong, good or bad. It just is what it is, and we either serve it or we fight it. And so, so many times, unnecessarily, churches shut their doors because they're not caring well for their people, and then we get all tizzy and, oh no, like God's bringing judgment, and God simply says, no, I'm the good shepherd. My people will be cared for. And if that means shutting down a church so that I can help them find another church to grow and thrive in, I will do that. And, and that's not a statement of harshness. It's just a statement of reality, that, that it matters that we just not attend here, but that we do life together, that we care for people, that we're intentional about talking to people that are new here or at least new to us, that ultimately God's heart is for his people. Jesus never said in John 15 or 16, God, make America a bunch of megachurches. He never prayed for that. What he did pray for is that the churches be unified. And the more we're unified usually reflects in our willingness and our desire to care for each other. Thirdly and finally, Jesus charges the church to care for those who have not made it home yet. And you hear his heart in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice. I will, uh, there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life. What other God in history lays down his life for his worshipers? Only Jesus. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up, this command I received from my Father. Not only does Jesus want to shepherd our hearts, not only Jesus wants our church to shepherd one another, but there are people far from God that are not in an empty chair right now. And they matter to God. And those people may have no idea what church should be like and what you should do and what you should say and how you should dress and all this robotic stuff. It just gets in the way. Jesus says there are people as C.S. Lewis calls it, in the far country. That, that space, even where the prodigal son, that space where you're just in a land of, Egh. people are wondering. People want hope. People want answers. And people want to be cared for. I want to be a church that's not driven by events, but a church that's driven by relationships, where we take the faith that we love and own and start investing it in other people. Let's pray. Uh, God, thanks so much for this opportunity to talk about your level of care for us. Um, sorry that we boil it down to behavior modification so much, uh, that, that even, even before you were born, as the song said, you would sing over us, as you would sing over your sheep traveling from point A to point B. And sometimes we can get in our own heads when we think about God. It can boil it down to how we're behaving and ultimately, what you care about is our soul and the development of our soul and how we engage in life from when we wake up and from when we go to bed. And we, we thank you for the reckless love of God. I love the word reckless. It's <laughs> Your love does not behave well. It goes after us. 
because we want to run hard opposite of you, and you keep reminding us that you're for us, even if we're not for ourselves. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.